Thank you for uh, having me here today. It's, um, it's a pleasure to be here. I've been working on the alternatives to the war on drugs for about 21 years now. Um, it's in some ways very depressing, in other ways we made tremendous progress. So when I first began working in this field um, on cannabis legalization, for instance, popular support was less than 30%. Today it's over 66%. So in that sense, we've taken uh, tremendous strides. In other ways, we've gone backwards and, and uh, other parts of the world have really regressed quite a bit in terms of uh, their approach to this. I'm going to look at talk about three different case studies and try to uh, compress an hour lecture into 20 minutes here. but. But I'll talk about the uh, supply side, um, the, the cultivators who grow the, the, these crops, the producers, the uh, interdiction efforts, uh, and then the supply side, uh, demand side rather, and the consumption side. Um, so politicians often say, well, we know where the drugs are coming from. Why don't we go down there and destroy it before they can be turned into drugs and, and, and reach our streets and, and hurt our kids, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and Plan Colombia is a really good example of uh, how this has failed. So uh, beginning in the late 90s, at the tail end of the Clinton administration, uh, they began talking about a billion dollar militarized aid package to Colombia to help fight the war on drugs, which was deeply intertwined with a, with a at that point, uh, four decade old civil war. And uh, the main instrument of policy was the crop duster. So we sprayed millions of acres of the second most biodiverse country in the world trying to eradicate the coca bush before it could be turned into coca paste and refined into cocaine and smuggled out. Uh, it hasn't really worked. Today there is as much if not more coca than when we began uh, nearly 20 years ago. Uh, and so without maintaining that pressure of constant battering uh, of people and the environment, uh, it's not possible to reduce uh, the coca cultivation. Primarily because these people, uh, the farmers who produce this stuff, live in very remote areas. Uh, if you walked out of this building today, you'd see signs of the state in every direction you looked, right? Paved roads, running water, police, etc. cetera. Uh, there are many parts of Colombia you could walk for days and not see any sign of the state. And so the things that we take for granted in terms of what it takes to get farmers to grow other crops, uh, besides coca or poppies or, or cannabis, uh, simply don't exist. We're talking about people who live on a couple of dollars a day. Um, they're living in remote areas, sometimes uh, far, far away from anything that you would consider a road. Um, I'm sorry, I wasn't able to hook up the projector today. Uh, it's, I'm on an iPad. But, uh, but these remote areas, uh, it makes good economic sense for these farmers to grow coca. Because doing that, you can grow, cut down a couple of acres of Amazon rainforest, uh, do slash and burn agriculture, and plant some coca bushes. From that, you harvest the leaves, and using very basic chemicals, you don't need an advanced degree for this by any means. Um, it's basically uh, concrete, uh, sulfuric acid, gasoline, ammonia, concrete, uh, a few other nasty chemicals. They can make a paste uh, from this coca leaf. And so you can reduce a couple of acres down to less than a kilo of paste. That is easily transportable. Um, you could put it into a backpack, or walk to the nearest village, or go on horseback and sell that paste. Uh, sometimes the middleman will come directly to your farm, you know, pay you cash in the barrel head and take it away for you. That solves your transportation problems. Instead, we've been demanding these farmers grow other crops, uh, so-called alternative development. But we've been demanding they do this in the context of a, of a reality that most technocrats don't understand. Um, they've never spent much time in these regions. And so they're demanding that farmers grow hundreds of kilos of fruits and vegetables to transport on vehicles they literally don't have over roads that very often just don't exist. 
uh, and, if, uh, and to sell in markets, both domestic and export, they can't get access to. And even if they could, these farmers would then have to compete against cheap agribusiness imports, very often subsidized by our tax dollars through various trade agreements, against which these peasant farmers don't stand a chance. Um, so that's one reason this hasn't worked in terms of, of, of eradication policies. Um, nonetheless, we've been spraying and spraying uh, them up until 2015 when the World Health Organization linked the active ingredient in the main chemical being used, Roundup. Um, the chemical is called glyphosate and linked that to cancer. So at that point, the Colombian government ceased uh, aerial fumigation. Um, uh, but they're thinking of res resuming it now, uh, using drones or, or uh, aerial eradication again, uh, because the manual eradication, where, where groups of people, uh, men, are literally, you know, in 20 minutes, they'll, they'll dig up your farm, um, that has proven less effective and also quite hazardous for everybody involved. They tend to get shot, there are landmines in, in place, et cetera. Uh, so they want to do this by air. Uh, so that hasn't worked. There's no expectation that it'll continue working, uh, given these dynamics, because they haven't dealt with why people are doing this. So that gives you a little sense of the futility of, of uh, uh, tackling this on the supply side. Uh, there are others who say, well, we should interdict these drugs. Um, if you can't stop it on the ground, and keep in mind, Colombia is bigger than Texas and California combined. The same is true of Bolivia. The same is true of Peru. All three countries are enormous. Uh, but you watch these Capitol Hill briefings and they you know, got a map and they point, oh, we'll just eradicate here, here, and here, move these here, here, and there, and that'll problem solved. These are vast expanses. Um, try you know, uh, passing an edict to ban tomatoes in, uh, being grown in Texas and California. Uh, see if you can eradicate every last tomato plant. It's not possible. Um, so uh, given that we can't eradicate drugs at the source, and even if we could, by some miracle, eradicate this from Colombia, uh, and Peru and, and, and Bolivia, Sub-Saharan Africa is ripe for the picking. Uh, a century ago, the world's largest coca plantations were not in South America. Uh, they had nothing to do with the Andes. They were in Indonesia, um, Formosa, Taiwan, where I was born, had large coca plantations. I only learned this recently. Iwo Jima had coca plantations, and Hawaii had small plots as well. Um, but that was the Dutch and the Japanese, mostly, that, that were growing the coca back then for cocaine, for medicinal use. Um, so it grows in many different soils and climates. So if we can't eradicate this stuff at the source, then some people say we should interdict it, stop it at the borders, build a wall, for instance. Um, if you uh, consider the idea of a wall uh, to stop these drugs, this is essentially a Bronze Age, Bronze Age technology, right? My people know walls. They don't work that long. They, lots of, it's easy to devise countermeasures to these walls. Uh, and uh, we already have a lot of fence uh, on the border area that was put up under, under uh, Bush and, and Obama. Uh, but Trump wants to eat even taller, bigger wall with pointy spikes and all these other things. But the countermeasures have always existed to that wall. Uh, one of the first things they did was build ramps on, onto flatbed trucks, literally drive up to the wall, extend the ramp over the wall, and I've got photos, unfortunately, you can't see, but of, of SUVs literally driving over the wall uh, on these ramps. Um, there's also uh, Roman-era countermeasures, catapults. Right, so they build uh, catapults or trebuchets that launch huge bales of drugs right over the wall. Uh, some of them have even been clamped onto the wall itself, uh, where you pull a lever down, pull the, pull the string, lowers the arm, and you put your drugs on there, and it flips it right over the wall. Uh, they've also adapted um, uh, technologies from sports stadiums. So you've seen t-shirt cannons and that sort of thing. Um, the traffickers have large cannon, pneumatic cannons, on the back of uh, uh, pickup trucks or mounted in vans. And some of them are pretty big diameter. Uh, so they can blow a 100-pound bale of drugs right over that wall. Uh, there's also uh, 
Lots of other countermeasures below the wall, narco tunnels. We've discovered more than 100 uh, crisscrossing the US-Mexican border. And there are probably another couple of hundred um, that are in operation. Once these things are, are open, they can move drugs 24-7. Uh, they can also repatriate cash southbound, uh, as well as guns and ammunition. Um, these tunnels are incredibly sophisticated these days. They've got rail systems, ventilation, um, drainage systems. Uh, uh, you know, so it's, they, they found one in San Diego, uh, Tijuana border, a couple of years ago, uh, before it opened. Uh, and they found 40 tons of marijuana on Mexican side, ready to cross the United States. Gives you a sense of the scale of, of these things. Uh, nowadays, they're not smuggling that much marijuana. In fact, there's evidence it's going the other direction uh, because the Mexican marijuana is such poor quality that consumers are demanding US legal product instead. Um, but so there, there, there are tunnels. There are uh, above ground options. So uh, in, the, in the old days, they would use small planes, for instance, to ferry drugs. We got better at detecting them. They got, it got to the point where they would even buy an old airliner on its last legs and crash landed on the other side. Uh, the plane was essentially disposable because the amount of drugs you could put on there and the payload, the profits on the other side were so extreme, um, it, it made no difference to them. They could just buy another plane if they needed. Nonetheless, we got better at detecting those planes. And so they switched to ultralights, you know, those, those um, lawnmower engine powered uh, uh, light aircraft that have drop cages underneath them. Um, so they can hold a couple hundred pounds of drugs. The ultralights go over the wall of the fence, uh, but under the radar. And they see their accomplice on the other side, they pull the lever, drops the drugs. Um, and uh, we got better at detecting those. So they're, now they're moving to drones. Uh, and the drones are not the kind of hobbyist drones that you're familiar with. Um, some of the newer uh, industrial drones can, I think the maximum thus far has been 600 pound payload. We're talking about serious amounts of, of drugs that can be moved by, by drones. And I think in the future, uh, you've seen these flying cars and, and flying taxis being, you know, uh, uh, debuted in Dubai and other places, like, like it's an Uber and you know, autopilot taxis. Um, someday, I think you'll see a lot of those along the border area just shuttling back and forth. It's, it's very difficult to stop these things. Uh, there's also the maritime route. Uh, the old, in the old days, they would use fishing boats and, and try to hide drugs underneath, you know, frozen shrimp or, or uh, seafood. We got better at inspecting those, so they started using speed boats, cigarette boats that could outrun Coast Guard vessels. So we gave the Coast Guard uh, helicopters and, and 50, caliber, 50 caliber sniper rifles to, to shoot their engine blocks. Uh, so then they switched to semi-submersibles. These are not true submarines. Uh, they're mostly made of fiberglass, and they're enormous. They can hold uh, 6 to 12 tons of drugs per run. And they basically stay 90% below water, and the conning tower remains above. That's where they get the air and they navigate. And during the day, they'll just throw a blue tarp over themselves and blend in with, with the ocean, and they travel by night. So as one DEA official said, you try find, finding something the size of a log floating in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, nonetheless, we got better at detecting those. That, that small conning tower was enough uh, to get a radar signature off of. So they've now developed fully functional, proper submarines that could dive up to 50 feet below, below water. And again, these can move uh, you know, 5, 10 tons easily. Um, and we've caught one of those. Uh, others are they're very difficult to, to capture. But uh, they're also moving towards uh, uh, you know, uh, remotely operated um, uh, narco torpedoes, they're called, or sleds. Basically, uh, it uh, looks like a torpedo. And sometimes they're bolted underneath uh, a, you know, a, a freighter. They found some of those in Belgium. 
so unless you send divers underneath the ship, searching the ship itself, you'll find nothing. But even still, uh, sometimes they do you know, look under, under the ships. Uh, so they switch to using very long cables um, that tow this, this torpedo or, or sled be, uh, behind the boat. And very often, there'll be two or three boats involved in this. So if the first boat is somehow stopped, you'll find nothing by searching the boat unless you send a diver underneath, and you'll see the cable. But if they do that, they just release the cable, uh, and the torpedo floats away. It's got a homing mechanism on there that surfaces every uh, couple of hours and emits an encrypted uh, GPS signal so for the follow-up vessels. They come and pick up the, the cargo that way. So you see the problem. We're, we're getting into a lot of different countermeasures that's very easy to defend against a wall. Um, most importantly, the, the silliness of, of the wall in general. Um, uh, let me see if I can find a good illustration of this. Donald Trump uh, initially said he wanted a, um, uh, a big, beautiful concrete wall, 30 feet high, solid wall. You don't want to put a solid wall in the desert, number one, because of flash flooding, uh, dunes. Google flash flooding deserts if you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, anyway, uh, so and Border Patrol convinced him um, reasonably that you know having a solid wall is not a good idea because you need to see what's on the other side. People are amassing if they're up to something. So then Trump said, well, we'll, we'll have a slatted wall. Um, these, you know, uh, here's an illustration of him. Can't see this very closely, but that's the new wall that he's building, right? You see the slats? See the four-inch gaps in between the slats? If you're a drug trafficker, what's your first countermeasure going to be? Three and a half inch wide drug packages. You'll literally hand them through the wall. Uh, but his followers believe this is going to somehow solve our drug problem. Uh, but let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say, okay, let's 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 assume that somehow this wall magically stops 50% uh, of the heroin coming into the United States. It's a good thing, right? Good? I think it'd be absolutely disastrous. Uh, and I think fatalities and overdoses will spike off the charts if that actually happens. Uh, so I'm glad this wall won't work because they haven't addressed the demand. The demand is still there. What's killing people today in terms of opioids? It's not heroin, it's fentanyl, right? So fentanyl is about 50 times more powerful than, than heroin. Uh, it's easy to smuggle from China and other places. You can get it through uh, the dark web. It it's, comes in uh, the post. And uh, little tiny amounts are enough to go a very long way. So dealers have been uh, mixing the fentanyl into the heroin. Uh, and it's very difficult to, to mix this properly. So people get much higher doses than they thought or get lower doses. It's not very consistent. And that's what's calling, causing people to die. A couple of grains of sand worth of fentanyl is enough to kill you. Right? So if uh, you are able to stop half the heroin in the United States and you still have high demand, what's the logical market response going to be from, from traffickers? They're going to take the remaining heroin that does get through and cut even more fentanyl into this, and our overdose rates will skyrocket. Um, and so Trump is actually tr trying to go after the fentanyl, um, going after uh, some of the precursor chemicals, pushing, uh, pu uh, putting pressure on the Chinese government to clamp down on these things. But there are countermeasures for fentanyl. There, there are analogs that are far more problematic and more powerful. One of them is carfentanyl. You may have heard of it. It's, uh, it's used as uh, basically elephant tranquilizer or buffalo tranquilizer, large animals, right? Uh, and that's hundreds of times more powerful than heroin. And that's turning up in our domestic heroin supply right now. <laughs> Luckily, it's not a, a huge amount because fentanyl is, is somewhat safer. Um, but if you are able to stop the fentanyl, there's always the substitutes. Uh, it's called the iron law of prohibition. It's a lesson we should have learned uh, through alcohol prohibition that 
uh, as long as there's demand, uh, the market will find innovative uh, solutions, workarounds that are substitutes that are very often more potent, um, easier to produce, and harder to stop. In a way that alcohol prohibition helped transform a nation of beer drinkers and wine drinkers into a nation of hard liquor drinkers, right? If you were, if you were a bootlegger during prohibition, the last thing you wanted to smuggle was beer. Giant keg of beer on your back, you'll be spotted, you'll go to jail. If you're going to take that risk of going to jail, you want the most potent form of alcohol available, uh, booze or, or moonshine uh, or grain alcohol. Uh, and that's the way it also works in, in drugs. Um, in some ways, well, when I was in, in high school and Ronald Reagan was president, uh, and his number one drug enemy was not cocaine, it was marijuana coming from Jamaica and, and Colombia. So he threw the military and, and Coast Guard into South Florida, tried to cut off the shipments of marijuana. Didn't take long for the Colombian smugglers to realize, you know, we got something else here that's a lot more compact, it's more profitable, it's not big and bulky and smelly like these giant pails of marijuana, um, and, and, and it's addictive to some people. So you get a repeat customer, and so that of course was cocaine. In some ways, our war on marijuana helped popularize the explosion of cocaine in the 1980s, and in still other ways, our war on cocaine helped popularize the poor person's cocaine, crack. And in still other ways, uh, our war on crack helped repopularize uh, the poor person's crack, methamphetamines. Each time you end up with a more difficult to stop, more problematic drug, right? Uh, and so uh, that's the futility of, of, of the supply side policies of, of interdiction as well as crop eradication. And so there are others are saying, well, we should go after the users, cut off the demand, that's how you do it. Um, and I just got back a few days ago from, from 10 days in the Philippines, where they're waging a very brutal drug war. President uh, Rodrigo Duterte, who came into power six months before Trump, but he was very similar to Trump, similar to Bolsonaro in Brazil, um, tough-talking, basically a fascist populist uh, with easy answers. And so he's convinced people that uh, through Facebook and other means, and, and, and Philippines is highly networked on Facebook, lots of disinformation. Um, he's told people that if you smoke uh, shabu, which is what they call methamphetamines there, for more than six months, your brain will shrink to the size of a baby's brain, or even a walnut, I've heard sometimes. Uh, and therefore, once that happens, there's no possibility of rehabilitation. We've got to kill them. And so lots of people who don't know any better just throw up their arms and say, well, what are we going to do? We're not a, we're not a rich country. Um, and you know, I told them, uh, you know, one of the most amazing things about the Philippines, its most precious resource are its people, especially its young people. They graduate a lot of people in the public health sector. If you looked at the U.S. medical system, if you, if you eliminated all the Filipinos and Filipinas who work as doctors, radiologists, pharmacists, nurses, uh, our healthcare system would be in deep trouble. So I said, why not graduate a whole new generation of, 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 of counselors? Uh, social workers to deal with a lot of the preconditions, uh, the, the root causes of why people are using these drugs to begin with, uh, rather than trying to, to uh, execute your murder your way out of this problem. And in the nearly three years President Duterte has been in office, he has killed uh, through extrajudicial killing, street, you know, shooting people in the streets basically, um, about 30,000 people, 20 to 30,000 by many estimates. Um, only 6,800 are, are officially acknowledged by the, uh, by the Philippine police. The rest are under investigation and will never be investigated. They don't have the resources or the will to, to, uh, to investigate these other cases. Uh, and so that's the futility of trying to um, you know, uh, either incarcerate your way out or execute your way out of this problem. Um, in 2007, 2008, the Iranian drug czar, uh, not a, a particularly liberal or, or progressive place in terms of drug policy, um, did uh, something very shocking. He authorized uh, the installation of, of uh, vending machines throughout Tehran 
um, to help the 2.8 million people who are addicted to opioids, uh, opiates over there by allowing them to purchase low-cost clean needles and, uh, uh, and condoms and, and uh, alcohol swabs and bandages and that sort of thing. Um, so you can find vending machines in Tehran selling these things uh, because they had a huge HIV explosion they were looking at. So you could either do that or deal with a much, much worse problem. And then in 2017, the Iranian legislature also pushed to end the use of uh, hangings as a way of dealing with uh, low-level drug offenses. They still execute a lot of people, uh, but thousands of, 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 of low-level uh, drug um, sellers were, were spared. So, you know, if Iran can turn around, um, there's, there's hope for the Philippines and other countries as well. Um, just generally speaking, I'll just wrap up. The, the, one of the main reasons we haven't been able to, to win the war on drugs is that we force this economy to evolve uh, at a lightning pace. Right, the drug economy tends to evolve under Darwinian principles, right, selection of the fittest. Uh, and decade after decade, as we throw in more policing resources at this problem, the kinds of people we've ended up capturing tend to be the people who are dumb enough to get caught. Right? No offense if anyone's ever been busted for anything here. But the, the expression on the street is that the dealer who uses loses. You know, don't get high on your own supply because you'll, you'll make mistakes. You'll get caught, you'll get sloppy, you'll get caught, you'll be out of the game. Well, conversely, for decades now, the kinds of people we've missed as we keep escalating this war on drugs tend to be the people who are the most innovative, the most adaptive, uh, the most cunning, not necessarily the most violent. Uh, violence is not a good uh, prescription for longevity in this business. Uh, but the, the people who are the most um, uh, innovative and adaptable, it's as, they're the ones that, that evolve and evolve at a very rapid pace. So it's, almost as if we've, been, we've had this policy of artificial selection. We've been selectively breeding super traffickers for decades. Right? So that's why you can't win a war on drugs through, through this blanket uh, application of, of, of law enforcement and military force. Um, you end up creating tremendous efficiency in the drug market that shouldn't exist otherwise. Um, it's kind of like an X prize. You know, the, you know the term X prize, where a billionaire you know puts up a prize. First one who could build a solar-powered plane, go across country, gets a you know ten million dollar award or whatever prize. Well, the U.S. government has basically established the ultimate X prize. If you can find ways to penetrate our border security, then you stand to make not millions but billions of dollars tax-free, uh, and that's what we've done. And it's not a smart thing to do. In fact, when I talk to some people in Homeland Security privately, they'll say this is really dangerous stuff we're doing in the drug war. Um, right now, there's, there's really no incentive for these traffickers to work with terrorist organizations to move WMDs or other things through those tunnels. Uh, but someday, if there's some lieutenant who's operating a tunnel, uh, might be bribable uh, or might be convinced to move a package they think is drugs but is actually WMD or something else, these are risks we should not be taking. And terrorists by themselves do not have the resources or the ability to make these tunnels. That's the drug traffickers. And so we create the market incentives for them to do that. Uh, and so that's why we can't win a war uh, going after, uh, going after uh, the little fish. You end up breeding super traffickers, right? So some people say, well, go after the kingpins instead. That'll do the trick. Um, so we've been doing that for decades, both domestically and internationally. Uh, we, we worked with the Colombian government to break up the Medellin cartel, the Cali cartel. These were the two dreaded giant cocaine cartels that ruled the cocaine economy of the globe, right? And we got rid of them. So you think that should have at least put a dent in the problem. More drugs than ever started coming out of Colombia. And then we had that plan, Colombia. Why? Well, what he essentially did was remove the two big monopolies. 
and we opened up an incredibly lucrative economic space to hundreds of smaller operators um, during the uh, first Bush administration, uh, rather uh, George W. Bush. There were so many smaller uh, operators that took over that economic space in Colombia, we couldn't even uh, you know, count the number, much less try to infiltrate and disrupt them. Um, many of these were, were butel, uh, boutique cartels, many family-run, vertically integrated, each with their own list of officials they bribed, their own smuggling routes. Uh, and so that's the problem with going after the kingpins. You end up democratizing this economy. Uh, and in fact, there's an internal homeland security study that says that, that showed that our, our attack on kingpins in Mexico, going after those cartels, has actually uh, increased the amount of violence and done nothing to reduce the amount of drugs coming in. Um, because once you, once you destabilize a cartel, then you have lieutenants uh, and rival cartels plotting to take over that territory, that turf, then you get turf battles and internal struggles. The only thing worse than, than organized crime is disorganized crime. And that's what we've been seeing in Mexico. Uh, President Calderon was, you know, he, 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 he was kind of the, uh, the original Trumpist. I'm gonna throw 50,000 troops at this problem, I'll show them. Uh, and that was in late 2006. And since then, more than 200,000 people have been killed in this drug war in Mexico. Uh, the government stopped counting because it's too hard to dis disaggregate who was killed from drug violence versus kidnapping versus other types of crime. But an awful lot of people have died since then. So much so that by the end of President Calderon's term in 2012, his final address to the UN General Assembly, he uh, basically, uh, in his watch the video of his speech if you can find it, he talks about the, need, the failure of the war on drugs, and he tried harder than anybody. Uh, and he talked about the need for market uh, control uh, of these substances and regulation. That's diplomatic code word for basically ending drug prohibition or, or legalization. Um, the, this year, the, all 31 agencies and programs of the United Nations came out with a, a cons consensus statement against uh, criminalization of drug possession. They recommended decriminalization across the board uh, for users. Because if you believe that drugs cause harm to the individual, then what, what, what sense does it make for the state to harm them even more by giving them a criminal record, uh, making them associate with other criminals, uh, and, and ruining their, their, their you know, health opportunities? If you drive them underground, they, it's much harder for them to, to, to receive care uh, or to seek out access to treatment or other, other services that, they, that could actually improve their lives. So that, in a nutshell, is why we haven't been winning this war on drugs and some of the dynamics uh, behind that. But, um, Anyway, I think I've used up my time. Uh, I'd be happy to try to take some questions later. Uh, thank you very much. Good afternoon. I would also like to thank uh, UBA School of Law and the organizers of the event for inviting me to this um, Human Rights Week. Uh, and today I'm going to talk a little bit more on the gender side and women incarceration and the disproportionate consequences of the war on drugs on women. Uh, but first, let me tell you a little bit more about our work and our project. Um, uh, as Alex mentioned, I work at the Washington Office on Latin America. Uh, it's a research and advocacy human rights organization. And WOLA was founded in the 70s after the coup in Chile, and we had been researching about drug policies for decades. Uh, so why to focus on women on incarceration? And while doing this research, we realized that it varies per country, but um, from 30 to 70% of women uh, who have been incarcerated in Latin America is for drug offenses. Uh, so four years ago, we decided to put together a regional working group with experts from different backgrounds, human rights, feminists, uh, drug policy reform folks uh, to do more research on these issues of drug policy women and incarceration. So our first 
product was a guide for reform, which was with, uh, it has particular, particularly policy recommendations for policymakers. Uh, and our, more lately, we have been working more with affected communities. Uh, so for instance, in July of this year, we put together the first ever regional uh, workshop with around 45 formerly incarcerated women from eight different countries, uh, including eight women from the US, uh, from the National Council of Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated women and girls, um, which was extremely powerful, and the idea was uh, just bringing them together so they could share their experiences uh, and also strategies for uh, organizing and for uh, this movement of uh, criminal justice reform. Uh, and the first thing that I want to say is that it's really hard to get accurate information uh, disaggregated by the kind of offenses that women and men have committed. Uh, so most of the information that I'm going to present is from Latin America, since we did a deep dive uh, of government statistics, but there is a lack of information about um, some of these issues. Um, so first of all, um, according to the World Female imprisonment list uh, between 2000 and 2017 um, worldwide the total female population increased by 53.3 percent while that of men uh, increased by only 19.6 uh, so there is uh, a disproportionate impact um, on women's incarcerations um, this is the same information disaggregated by uh, continent, and as you can see, except, except for the case of Europe, where the increase was only 3.5, uh, the increase in incarceration worldwide, uh, it's been astonished. Um, so we cannot uh, explain the increase in female prison population based on increase in general population. Uh, so based on our studies and our research, uh, one of the driving forces behind uh, female incarceration in the whole world are the harsh and disproportionate drug laws, uh, some of the issues that Sanjo was talking about before. Um, so these are the... There's a list of uh, countries in Latin America, and the percentage that uh, women commit, that who have committed drug offenses, uh, drug-related offenses, uh, compared to the prison population. And we can see that in countries like Panama, and Costa Rica, Venezuela, Brazil, Peru, Ecuador, and Chile, more than 50% of the women who are in prison are there for drug offenses. Uh, when we compare women and men, we can also see how the women are disproportionately affected. Uh, the yellow here represent women and the blue represent men. And for instance, in countries like Brazil, you can see the difference of 68% of women for drug-related offenses versus 26%. In some of countries like Costa Rica, the different percentage is more than 40%. Uh, so that's what we mean when we, th we said that uh, the drug laws have disproportionately impacted women. Um, we have to also um, be aware that there are populations and special risks, uh, including indigenous communities, black communities, trans, lesbians and LGBT communities and migrant women who face specific risk at the criminal justice system. And we have done some research on that, uh, particularly on trans women in prison because there's not much information about it. Uh, but these populations uh, are facing other vulnerabilities and we can talk a little bit uh, more about it. 
in Latin America, the sentences and sentences practice has been exported and well, importing from the US practices. And sometimes uh, the sentences are totally disproportionate. Uh, and they fail to distinguish, for instance, of uh, if the crime was violent or not, the gravity of the crime committed, uh, the substance that was involved, and the level of leadership in the drug trafficking organizations. Uh, so for instance, according to the United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime, around 83% of drug offenses are only from, for, from possession. It's not uh, drug trafficking. And in our research, we have found that people uh, incarcerated because they're selling small quantities of drugs, sometimes they have longer sentences than people who have committed uh, murder. So. Um, who are these women, um, and who are the who is in prison in Latin America for drug offenses? So this uh, information is based on a survey conducted by the Inter-American Development Bank, and 87 of them are the primary caregivers for dependents, children, and the elderly. 72 have committed nonviolent offenses. 62 were the first-time offenders. 56 have experienced uh, or are victims of domestic violence. Um, and the factors that led uh, women's incarceration for drug offenses in general, and this is also across uh, the Americas, uh, so most of them come from the level of education. They are under and unemployed. They are victims of asymmetric power relations. Sometimes they have drug dependency or mental issues. Uh, they are victims of coercion and domestic violence. Uh, we can see in our videos, but uh, from other experiences that we have had, and la they lack effective legal counsel, and sometimes they, they don't even have the means to afford uh, effective legal representation, and they come from conditions of uh, poverty and inequality. Um, so the trends in Asia uh, sometimes are even more alarming, and for instance, uh, in Thailand, 82 of the women prisoners are detained for drug-related offenses, and 78 are first-time offenders, and 93 are convicted. Um, so I just want to wrap it up because we would like to uh, have some question, time for question and answers, but the current drug policies just perpetuate this cycle of poverty and violence among women. So most of them come to the drug trade because of the lack of economic opportunities, and then they are affected by disproportionate and harsh, harsh sentences. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, sometimes they, they can carry longer sentences than uh, people who have committed rape or murder. Then it has a disproportionate impact uh, in their families, their children, the elderly, because most of the time they are the caregivers, so the bonds in the communities are broken, and they have a lot of uh, issues and challenges. Uh, difficult to re-enter in the society. They cannot find formal jobs. They cannot find housing. Uh, they need sometimes uh, health support. They need um, mental support or counseling. They need uh, their networks to reconstruct their life, uh, which the re-entry programs uh, in the prisons uh, most of the time, not to say, not always, never, uh, they, they work to provide these services and these uh, skills for them. And then as a result of desperation, sometimes they go again to the drug policy. Uh, so 
We consider that a more humane approach uh, based on a human rights framework uh, would be much uh, more beneficial for them. And as, as San Jose said, a more uh, a, a different approach to drug policy and drug poli uh, broader drug policy reform would be one of them. But there, we have also done research of an alternative to incarceration, how to promote uh, transformative and restorative justice frameworks, how to do more community-led initiatives to address these kind of conflicts in a different way. Uh, so I will leave it to that, and thank you so much. <laughs>